We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by new Power Party Taipei City Council candidate, Xiao Xin Sheng. Hello, everyone. And Nicholas Smith, who writes for Britain's Telegraph newspaper. Good evening. Tonight, we'll be discussing how Taiwan fits into this week's big summit in Singapore, the indictment of three members of the new party for colluding with China, calls for a constitutional interpretation on the government's pension reform policy, a crackdown on Airbnb, and World Cup fever once again hitting the small screen and the newspapers here in Taiwan. And we'll begin with big news for Taiwan this week that became a mere footnote in world news. As Taiwan and US officials on Tuesday reiterated their commitment to strengthening bilateral relations at the dedication ceremony for the new American Institute in Taiwan compound in Taipei's Neihu district. Now the ceremony was of course overshadowed by events in Singapore that same day. And well, even local cable television news channels opted to focus on the meeting between US President Donald Trump and North Korea. Korean leader Kim Jong-un for most of the morning. But I spoke with former AIT director William Stanton about the dedication ceremony and what the new de facto US embassy means for Taiwan-US ties. So, Bill, I mean, you were at the event on Tuesday of this week at the new AIT building. And what did you feel about it? Uh, Well, I felt enormous pride and an enormous sense of accomplishment because, you know, it was... You know, some say it's really been 19 years in the making because for years we were looking for a site that was big enough. And then there was one found. And when I arrived, we hadn't even put a hole in the ground back in 2009. And nine years later, we finally opened it. And there were quite a few struggles along the way. Um, There were many obstacles. There were some recalcitrants at different times by different agencies in Washington and so forth. But to see it come up, and, you know, what's remarkable is this is the one and only purpose-built facility for foreign representation in the United States. If you discount the old British consulate down in Kaohsiung, um, or, you know, the, the colonial buildings I get guess up at uh, Damshui. This is the only time that anyone's come and put up a facility, and not only that, but, um, you know, a, quote, diplomatic facility that is that is beautiful, that is huge, uh, that's going to have 500 people working there. That's how many uh, Taiwan and American employees all together work at AIT. Um, so it was very moving for those of us who had been involved in trying to foster and strengthen the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. We were all so proud that it had gone up and, and so happy for the future of the relationship because more than anything else, and Kim Moy, the AIT director, made this point uh, several times, both in the media and at the event, you know, it is a strong symbol of the U.S. commitment to Taiwan. Um, you don't put up a $256 million building if you don't have confidence in the future of your relationship with Taiwan. So I think it was a very meaningful achievement and uh, bodes well for the future. Right. What about the U.S. delegations that came over from Washington to attend the dedication ceremony? Of course, some of us had hoped that, you know, there would be even a higher level, a cabinet level visitor. 
But considering, I think there are a couple of factors. Um, one is that, of course, the summit with uh, Kim Jong-un, um, I think the White House was concerned that nothing would um, cast a shadow on that, and they were on the same day. So it was probably unlikely that we would get a uh, somebody higher than an assistant secretary. I think Marie Royce was a perfect choice because she many times with her husband has visited Taiwan. He's always been uh, a leader of the uh, you know the Taiwan caucus. He's always been an outspoken advocate. Uh, when I was at AIT, I, I met him. And um, she's now the Assistant Secretary for Education and Cultural Affairs. And that is a very important aspect of our relationship with Taiwan. I mean, we have a, a lively and growing Fulbright program. And we also have this program that has grown larger over the years of young American college graduates who come here to teach English, and they are basically located in relatively poor provinces so they can work with children, for example, Yuan Jumin, in other uh, less prosperous school districts where they may not have the facilities or the teachers to teach English. And it's a hugely rewarding experience for the students, I think, but also for our young teachers. So... In that sense, it was appropriate because cultural and educational affairs are important. And also, um, Assistant Secretary Royce, on many occasions, has herself in the past visited Taiwan. So she has this connection. And, you know, many of the other representatives are also strong supporters. Uh, they were all strong supporters of Taiwan. Um, so, I, you know, it was kind of inevitable, plus the fact that, my growing feeling is that Trump himself is rather squishy on uh, Taiwan. Uh, he's got this illusion that he and uh, Xi Jinping are great buddies, uh, which I don't think, certainly on the part of uh, of the uh, Secretary General, I don't think is the case. <laughs> but, um, you know, he... Um, he seems to uh, have a great influence on uh, Mr. Trump and the decisions he made. So I think, on the other hand, that I've never seen a stronger bipartisan commitment in the Congress, and certainly within the U.S. government, and even on the part of the American people, I think there's a growing, uh, growing support and strength of commitment to Taiwan. So... On balance, you know, the representation didn't present um, an issue for me. Be, you know, it was never going to happen that a guy like Bolton would come. <laughs> so I don't know who else you would bring out. You know, maybe in the future I hope we can see uh, even higher level representation. But I also hope that um, Assistant Secretary Royce will come back herself. Right. What about the new building? I mean, what does it mean for Taiwan-U.S. ties? What does it signify? Well, you know, if you, as I said, if you put up a building that that costs two hundred and fifty-six point six million dollars, um, it's not. You know, they have two kinds of embassies nowadays. They have ones that are kind of cookie cutter. That for in smaller, less important countries, they use a, a single design, which depending, you know, it's like those prefabricated homes. That you can take, you know, maybe one wing and you can move it to the back instead of on the side. Uh, you know, you can 
change it around, but the fundamental design of the embassy is the same. The other kind of design, whether it's Beijing or now Taipei, is that you put up something that's that's been actually designed for the site and is is an is a unique design for the embassy. So um you know, I think it, it it represents, as I said, a strong commitment to the U.S. Um, I think also it's something that also people of Taiwan can be proud of because I think it's it's unique now. Um, all the other representation offices in Taiwan are basically uh, rented office suites, and um, you know, in terms of the number of personnel, in terms of the size of the new facility. And I think also in terms of its beauty, I think it's, 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 you know, embassies have a lot of limitations because of security concerns, but I think by and large it's, it's a very striking uh, construction. And, you know, I think that the Taiwanese people should be proud that it's been uh, built in their country. What about, unfortunately, of course, Kinmoy is leaving soon, so there's, yeah. there's now questions about actually who's going to sit in the big office in the new building. Yeah, I don't think it's been announced, but I've seen in the rumor mill um, uh, that there's somebody in line. Um, I, I think it's uh, it was in the Taipei Times the other day that it's supposed to be Ben Christensen, who I know personally. Um, I think he's an excellent choice. He's a, he's a very, very decent guy. He was here as a missionary many years ago. Um, he speaks excellent Chinese. He's a very ethical, very... Um, He's a very good person. He's a very decent man. And um, I, I think if, if it's true that he's going to be named, I think he's an excellent choice. You know, his heart's in the right place with Taiwan. He was the uh, director of the Taiwan Affairs Office at the State Department, and he also served here as a deputy chief of mission. Um, I believe he served here earlier in other capacities. You know, I think I think we're on track. You know, everybody who comes as a director to AIT, we're we're all different. Um, but I haven't seen anyone who wasn't a strong supporter of the U.S. Taiwan relationship. In our own ways, we all make contributions in different ways. We all have different personalities, different strengths, different weaknesses. Um, but I think everybody who comes really tries to do their best for the relationship. Well, of course, there has been talk about U.S. Marines being stationed at the embassy. Yeah, I think um, they're not. It's something that uh, nobody wants to talk about. I can say that there are going to be uh, personnel uh, assigned who are going to be responsible uh, for the security of the facility. But it's uh, as near as I can tell, it's not something um, that anyone right now wants to. Uh, uh, create any controversies about. Right, uh, so but there will be personnel who are well-equipped and well-trained and very capable of looking after the facility and the people in it. Of course, the main purpose, um, traditionally of Marines, and there's a lot of misunderstanding of that, was always to protect uh, basically the facility and the, the information that's inside it. <laughs> Um, it's never been really particularly, although obviously when I was in Beirut, for example, they certainly protected us. Um, but that's, you know, it was designed basically to look after 
uh, what was inside, but not necessarily the people. That was the main function. Right, and talking about controversy, of course, what do you think Beijing is thinking seeing this brand new building in Taipei? Well, I'm sure they don't like it, um, but there's nothing they can do about that. They've, uh, they've already indicated they were, um, I think one newspaper headline said they were miffed. But actually, I think their response has been pretty low-key, because considering what could have been, I mean, you know, if they had sent Bolton, or they had sent uh, Pompeo, or they would sent Mattis, it would have sent a different message. So I think their perception will be that we played it rather low-key. Um, in some ways, I wish that weren't the case. <laughs> um, but there's no, there's no reason, unless you've got an ulterior purpose in mind, there's no reason to goad um, Dragon. Um, so, you know, I think they're, they've actually been remarkably restrained about the reaction, but I'm sure they hate it. And that was me in conversation with former American Institute and Taiwan director William Stanton. So, Shin, what do you think about the new embassy? I mean, it's good for Taiwan? Yes, I mean, every time I mean, there's an opportunity where the uh, U.S. state officials, they come and visit Taiwan and create, you know, dialogues, it's always a good thing. So I'm, I'm happy to see that happening. Moving on to the big summit itself, and President Tsai Ing-wen said that she believes Tuesday's meeting between U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will help ease tensions in Northeast Asia and on the Korean Peninsula. And DPP spokesman Johnny Lin told reporters that Tsai is giving high marks to the Trump-Kim summit because the two sides are willing to put aside hostilities and help ease tensions through dialogue, while the Ministry of Foreign Affairs says it believes the meeting between Trump and Kim was a historic opportunity for peace and stability in the region. Now I spoke with regular ICRT commentator Ross Feingold who was in Singapore for the summit and I asked him how he thinks it affects Taiwan. So Ross obviously you were in Singapore for the summit and you saw firsthand what was going on there and what was going on between the two leaders and their groups of their delegations so to speak. But I mean how do you think this affects Taiwan? It's an excellent question, and I think only time will tell. Obviously, Taiwan is not a primary stakeholder in the upcoming nuclear and missile talks and talks about sanctions relief, but Taiwan did have trade with Korea. There's concerns about violation of sanctions by Taiwan companies, and Taiwan can play a role in providing aid and other types of development assistance subject to whether or not North Korea is comfortable doing that given its, um, its close relations with China. Uh, Taiwan is, is certainly concerned about the regional security architecture and what it might mean if the United States was to draw down or even withdraw its troops from South Korea and what will Japan do going forward with regard to its security posture. So this is certainly a, a important issue for policymakers in Taiwan in the foreign policy space, in the trade space, and certainly in the national security space. I mean, do you think they should be monitoring it constantly now? I, I, I think just like any government around Asia, they should be monitoring it closely, starting with what is the uh, outlook for U.S.-China relations. President Trump said very complimentary things about Xi Jinping on Tuesday afternoon at, at the press conference at the end of the day. And that may have implications for Taiwan. We know that, and we've seen that over the last 18 months, that at times President Trump has said so publicly. It's not a secret that he wants 
to have China's cooperation when it comes to North Korea issues. And like it or not, this often gets bunched in with a number of other issues. U.S.-China trade disputes, U.S. relations with Taiwan. So, of course, Taiwan policymakers need to be monitoring this very, very closely. I mean, what about the general public in Taiwan? Because, of course, they got blanket coverage on Tuesday with all the TV cable news channels. Well, that was similar to uh, most places around Asia and, frankly, around the world as well. Uh, This was a historic event. It was certainly the biggest news event in in the political security space uh, for 2018 so far. Uh, So that's not a surprise. And, and in fact, that's actually very good because we often hear the criticism that uh, Taiwan news outlets don't give enough attention to international media, uh, international uh, media events, I should say. And I was in the media center in Singapore, and there were many, many Taiwan uh, newspapers and television television stations represented there, which is a, a very good thing. Uh, so the public should pay attention because it does impact them from the security and trade and foreign policy uh, angles, as we discussed. So it, it's crucial not just for the government, but of course for the public as well. And we're, of course, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week here in Taiwan basically lauded the summit as a great peacemaking effort. But I mean, what should the Ministry of Foreign Affairs be doing? Could it be doing something different? That's a good point, because uh, to, to say, yeah, you all did a good job, and to have that message come from Taiwan, and obviously doesn't mean anything to North Korea. I'm sure the United States appreciates it. Uh, China, it, it would be uh, feeling, uh, who are you to say anything? You, know, you, you shouldn't be commenting at all. You, have, you don't have a right to foreign policy, which uh, you know, those of us in Taiwan would, would not accept that view, but that's going to be the, the view from Beijing. Uh, I think the work for Taiwan is really behind the scenes. It's not a statement from MOFA that's going to make any difference uh, as far as Taiwan's position on the issues that we just described, the trade and security and foreign policy issues. It's going to be work that goes on behind the scenes. So uh, you asked, should they be paying attention, uh, whether the public or in government agencies? The answer is absolutely yes. Is issuing a public statement um, saying they support it relevant? It's certainly not as important as South Korea or Japan or or the primary stakeholders issuing such a statement. So the, the hard work for the government of Taiwan with regard to North Korea developments, which we hope and we should encourage will occur, is going to be things behind the scenes. That was regular ICRT commentator Ross Feingold on the phone from Singapore. Now, Nikki, you were also in Singapore for the meeting. I was indeed, yeah. In fact, you were in the same building as Ross. I was about a metre away from Ross well, during the entire summit. So, And you listened to Ross's comments, so what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Ross on, on all of his points, actually. I, I mean, I, I think for Taiwan, uh, generally speaking, um, it's it's good to have more stability in Northeast Asia. It, it benefits us all that there there's not a constant threat of uh, nuclear weapons or missile launches. Or you know, if you look at if you look at where we were in December, um, people were genuinely talking about some kind of conflict happening imminently, and that's no longer the case. Um, I mean, really, when you look at the summit conclusion, we it, you know we haven't. 
moved, made much progress towards denuclearization. Um, the summit's conclusion was very vague, um, and not much detail. The, the US has walked back from its previous, well, it hasn't walked back, but it hasn't achieved its, uh, its uh, previous hardline stance um, about we don't really know how, how Kim is going to denuclearize and, and get rid of his nuclear weapons. But at the same time, um, it's, it's, there are warm ties now between the US and North Korea, and that can only benefit everyone in this region. But I mean, what about obviously Ross voiced concern that because close ties between the Washington and Pyongyang also means close ties between China and Washington. How could this affect Taiwan? Well, it's, you know, China's going to, to do what it, what it wants to do over Taiwan, regardless of what happens in North Korea. Yes, I have heard fears um, from within the Taiwanese administration that um, there could be more of a focus on Taiwan now that, um, you know, if there is uh, peace with, with uh, North Korea. But, uh, you know, it, it's inevitable in any case. I, I don't think it's going to make a huge amount of difference to, to China's actions. Um, uh, what what I think Taiwan should be looking at is um, whether uh, U.S. troops will be withdrawn from, from South Korea. I think that would really change the security balance in the region. Um, and... You know, I, I I think China's come out as a big winner of this summit, but I don't see the U.S. starting to uh, renege on its on its commitments to Taiwan anytime soon either. Yeah. So one interesting fact um, that's not mentioned in Russ's comment is um, what China might be doing behind the scenes. So um, one thing that's worrying, you know, general Taiwanese is um, Xi Jinping is becoming ever more skillful in in dealing with Trump. Um, so I, I, we have a feeling that he may have figured out that um, in dealing with Trump, what you need to do is you um, let him, you know, appear to be the boss, appear to be in control, and then um, let him, you know, try not to embarrass him and let him ho- have the whole show. Um, and that's what exactly is happening in, in the summit. So um, whatever China is doing behind the scenes and then um, and, and make, make the summit happening, I mean, it, it appears that, China has figured out a way um, to work with the Trump administration, and it may worry the, the general Taiwanese that what um, Taiwan may become a bargaining chip in such conversations. I think you have to remember, though, that yes, I, I do actually think that not both North Korea and China have made a psychological profile of Donald Trump, probably from his Twitter account. Um, and they do know how to, to negotiate with him really quite deftly. But uh, Donald Trump isn't the entire US administration. So I, I do think that there's a very kind of strong pro-Taiwan lobby within his senior officials um, and within the military. And it's, it's also in America's regional interest not to allow t- um, China to have its way with Taiwan, not to allow China to control the Taiwan Strait. Um, and I, I think, you, you know, from just indications, recent indications in Washington um, on their tai- Taiwan policy, I think, have been very positive for, for Taipei. Yeah, I agree. Um, especially, um, we uh, consider John Bolton by uh, Trump's side a, a strong sign that um, Trump administration is becoming friendly with uh, with Taiwan. Um, but we have yet to see um, like pro-Taiwan policies being, you know, um, realized in, 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 in actual um, form. So um, that's something we still need to pay close attention to. Um, but one way to point out, yeah, is that um, the summit may be pretty, you know, high-profile international um, 
show, but um, what we need to realize is either uh, both Trump and Kim are very um, hard to predict, and then they don't have a high reputation of being, you know, stick to their words. So um, what's going to happen is still, still, um, no, still pending. Right, and moving on to China, more about China. This time only this involves three members of the new party's youth committee. Now, they were indicted this week on charges of violating the National Security Act and of colluding with a convicted Chinese spy. And the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office says that new party spokesman Wang Bing Zhong and two other members by the names of Lin Ming Chung and Ho Han Ting, well, they were involved in organising spy networks for China here in Taiwan in collusion with Zhou Hong Shu. Now, Zhou happens to be serving a 14-month prison term at the moment after he was convicted of breaching the National Security Act in September of 2017 for attempting to recruit spies for Beijing here in Taiwan. And prosecutors say that Joe and the three new party members were asked by China's Taiwan Affairs Office to set up pro-Beijing groups at local universities and also to collect intelligence on Taiwan's military. And also there's been allegations that China's Taiwan Affairs Office promised to pay Wong 15 million NTA a year to operate the pro-unification website by the name of Fire News. Now, whether by accident or incident or however he did this, poor old Wong actually used the new party's Taipei headquarters as the registered address for this website. Now, the indictments came a week after Wong called on judicial authorities to stop dividing the nation over the case, and he and the other three people are denying the charges and they're also claiming that they've been framed by the government. So Shin, have they been framed by the government? Um, I wouldn't say so. So first of all, um, I want to say that although the new party stands at the polar opposite in terms of political spectrum to um, we, the new power party, um, but we want to uh, point out that they assume innocence before they are proven guilty. So first of all, I want to discuss you know, the structural problems instead of an individual case in this scenario. So um, in this Chinese spy network you know, cases, the structural problem is that the general public in Taiwan um, have uh, the identification problem in terms of Taiwan as their own country or uh, it's China. So there, there are some you know, group in the population that identifies China as their country so that they feel it's okay you know that certain activities that we may classify as Chinese spies but they may just classify as normal activity as an advocate for unification so um, they, you when arguing with that you enter a gray area and you, you, you just either being shouted at that stop dividing the country or you are just accusing people of being a, a Chinese spy so this, this is something that uh, we, we need we need to pay close attention to. But are you concerned because obviously you belong to a political party, the three chaps that were indicted belong to a political party, do you think that this is endangers political freedom in Taiwan, such cases? I don't think so because if such party receives cash from um, Chinese government um, and they engage in certain activities that uh, they may uh, be considered as developing a spy network, then, um, then such party needs to, you know, be responsible and be indicted, um, but 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 in in the law, I mean, the 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 punishment for developing a spy network is actually pretty low. It's only five years and below. So, um, but in in America, for example, you can be uh, sentenced to as much as twenty years in prison. So, there's something we need to be you know thinking about if um, a spy activity is uh, is a very serious offense. 
Because, of course, there's been public calls to increase the sentences. Yes, and we, uh, we do strongly support um, increasing the sentence for, uh, for developing a spy network in Taiwan. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's always the danger of trial by media as well, isn't there? I mean, I think you're you're right to say that people should be presumed innocent before um, being declared guilty, especially by the media. Um, I, you know, just looking surface level at the case, it it does seem a very large claim um, to to be developing a, a whole spy network that is that is infiltrating the military. I'd be intrigued as to what evidence lies behind that. Um, you know, especially if they were they're making basic errors with websites. I'm I'm pretty sure that, that China has a very sophisticated spy network already that includes not only human intelligence but but um also uh internet, satellite, um kind of uh, the use of modern technology. Um but it, it does. I mean, these kind of things just add to the the, the feeling that that China really is uh, amping up the pressure on Taiwan, just in in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, kind of psychologically, uh, also through military intimidation, and just trying to really um, infiltrate Taiwanese uh, society. I mean, I, I think there is, regardless of whether this case stands up or not, I, I, I do think that Beijing's making very concerted efforts on all fronts to really um, pressurise Taiwan just now. Yeah, I want to point out a tangential issue um, on this controversy is that there's been discussion of banning of Chinese flags in uh, in Taiwan. Um, so one might argue that this is an uh, infringement on um, freedom of, of expression. Um, but on the other hand, if you consider the national security issues, um, raising a, a flag that's uh, actively um, in combat with uh, with Taiwan, um, is, that, is, that, is that reasonable um, protection under the uh, freedom of um, speech um, laws. So this is a lot of discussion back and forth. Even within our new power party, there's not a uniform um, consensus. So um, we, um, it's very interesting. You, sure, you can't ban a flag from being flown. You might argue that you cannot, but um, but some will argue the other way. But surely that's you know when you see the Chinese flag flying outside of uh, Taipei 101, I mean that's a real sign of Taiwan's democracy that it's it's flourishing exactly. and that you do have freedom of speech. I mean I don't think anyone's really going to turn pro-China by seeing a, a Chinese flag flying in the streets of Taipei. I totally agree. Um, but you know on the other hand there are strong feelings against that flag and then the flag being uh, an active flag of our enemy, so to speak. So, you know, there's a quite reasonable argument on the other side as well. Now, moving on, the government is still hoping that its pension reform policies will take effect on July the 1st. However, veterans groups and associations representing civil servants and public school teachers are now seeking to put a spanner in the works by demanding that the Council of Grand Justices make a constitutional interpretation on the government's state pension reform proposals. Now, the groups are claiming the planned pension cuts are unconstitutional and will result in fewer people opting to work for the government in the future. And the 800 Heroes Veterans Group says it's managed to get 38 lawmakers from across party lines to sign an application to file for said constitutional interpretation, while the National Civil Servant Association has also submitted its own application for the interpretation. So, Shin, I mean, are you is your party in agreement with this policy or not? Uh, our party is actually actively calling for uh, a pension reform. 
because we realize that um, the financial stability of our country depends on such reforms. Because um, back in the um, 50s, 60s, the, uh, the KMT governments promised the public sector employees a lot of benefits, including the uh, 18% interest rate. Um, um, and coincidentally, my father is such a beneficiary. Um, but, um, but consider, you know, the financial health of our country in the long term, we do realize that this needs to be changed. And then our party has been very active in, uh, in formulating such a change. I mean, do you agree with the current policy the government's hoping to put into effect by July the 1st? Or would you like to see it slightly altered? Well, this has been delayed um, quite some time now. You know, the, you know, every time we're trying to pass you know, the reform, the, the so-called 800 warriors uh, go on the street and protest. So, um, and this reform has been talked about by, uh, since the Ma administration. And right now, uh, finally, President Tsai has been you know, putting this in motion. And then we feel that it's about time to uh, get this get, go, go into effect. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that something has to change quickly uh, you've got all of these young professionals who are just leaving because they don't have um, they don't have decent salaries they don't they're, they're not promised the same benefits and at some point you have to have some kind of balance in society don't you otherwise you're, you're just going to have an island full of old people um, and all your young talent is going to leave I, I, I think on this issue I, very often the media is hijacked by the very vocal people who are out on the streets and, and kind of violently protesting. Um, so, you know, it, it's time maybe to listen to, to the rest of the population. I mean, do you think the Constitutional Court could tell the government no? I think the chances of this are very slim. No, I think it's very slim because the actually the this this constitutional court has already given um, a, a close opinion about the so-called legitimate expectation of the uh, the eighteen percent um, interest rate, um, but and it was determined that um, from timely you know adjustment of such a um, pension is actually reasonable given you know the the population makeup and. And, and stuff like that. So as long as there's a time period where you can, you know, a grace period where you can face it in, it's uh, it's not a violation of so-called the uh, legitimate expectation doctrine. And hotel operators are calling on the government to crack down on illegal short-term rentals listed on online platforms such as Airbnb. Now, hoteliers here in Taiwan say they're losing 30 billion NT in revenue to the owners of said illegally rented out apartments. Now, according to the Taipei Hotel Association, the illegal short-term rentals are not taxed and they operate unregulated, which means they pose a safety risk for people who choose to rent them. Now, the Tourism Bureau says that it will request that rental platforms like Airbnb Airbnb remove illegal listings and it will also seek to increase the fines for the owners of such properties to be deemed illegal. Now Airbnb in reply to that has said that it's willing to work with the government here to meet those demands but it doesn't want to see a complete ban of its rental programs on the island. So Nicola, I mean the next Uber, Uber, sorry. Yeah, well, yes, and look who won that that fight. I mean everybody uses Uber um, because it's so convenient. Uh, it's the same with Airbnb. I mean, it's so retrograde to try in this in 2018 to try and ban something that's used all over the world. It's like really convenient. A lot of young people 
um, are are on it because they can't afford to stay in like very expensive hotels. And I'd really like to see what evidence these hotels have about you know this huge figure that they're apparently losing. Maybe they just need to up their game. Um, and do better promotional campaigns and just, you know, get with the modern era. Airbnb exists all over the world. Why should Taiwan um, miss out on, on, you know, just a very modern, convenient way of traveling? It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's baffling that the, the hotel association is calling to ban Airbnb because they are not taxed and not regulated. Well, why don't we just tax them and regulate them? Well, that's why um, when I'm running you know, for city council, my message is that I am a software engineer. I'm a technologist, and I know technology. So if I'm in office, I'll make sure that the, 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 the city um, has uh, regulations that will help the so-called technology, you know, internet startups, thrive in our city instead of if being banned once they uh, disrupt the, the status quo. But, I mean, do you think that maybe the government could tax them? Uh, yes, of course, of that's, course. A, that's the issue, really, isn't it? People rent out their houses and don't pay tax, or should they not be taxed? Well, I mean, it, it's it's income. I don't know how, um, uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan of tax, obviously, but I, I'm sure other countries have resolved this this question. I mean, I don't know how everyone has done it, but if you're making uh, income out of a property, then there are ways to be taxed on that. Um, I mean, it's just, it's very head in, a very head in the sand approach if you just say, oh, oh well, this is a problem, so, so we just have to like completely ban it. I mean, there must be some kind of solutions um, towards, declaring what income you get through Airbnb and being taxed fairly on that. And I think the safety question is also just, you know, rubbish. Airbnb has its, has its you know, strict um, regulations as well. And if you're looking for an Airbnb uh, property, then you know that it's already, it, you know, it has been vetted. I mean, if you have to take your own precautions as well. Um, but I, I just think these are very spurious, empty arguments. Right. Um, to draw the parallel in Uber, I mean, um, I live in New York City for the past 10 years and uh, I could not go anywhere without Uber. Um, but once I'm back in Taipei, um, I couldn't find any. No, I, mean, I could find Uber, but most form of uh, the, the real Uber were banned in, in, in Taiwan. Um, so that's really, um, that's really sad to see that, you know, everywhere in the world, I mean, every city is trying to work with Uber. But in Taiwan, um, it was decided that such technology can exist here. But of course, the crux of it is Airbnb. So would you rent out your apartment? Uh, I wouldn't because I like my own space. <laughs> but I think people should be allowed to do it if they want to. Shin, would you rent out your apartment to some holidaymaker? Uh, yeah, I would if I'm like traveling. So if my apartment is going to be vacant for like two weeks, I'll definitely try to make a buck. You'll check them out first, though. The yeah. person that's renting it. You'll vet them first? I'll vet them first. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> anyway, before we go this week, the World Cup in Russia began on Thursday yesterday here. And while Taiwan is not known as a footballing or soccer nation, the four-yearly extravaganza is now a staple of the daily news cycle when it's underway. Now, Taiwan's popular tabloid-style newspaper, the Apple Daily, filled its front and back pages with World Cup special information on Thursday. And the opening ceremony and the game between Russia and Saudi Arabia made the front pages of the Liberty Times, the Apple Daily and the United Daily News this morning and was all over cable television news. Now, traditionally, local soccer fans have long been avid supporters of either Argentina, Germany or Brazil during the World Cups. So, sorry, Nikki, they're not supporting Scotland. 
Yeah, well, we'll be watching from the TV, won't we? Yeah, yeah. Well, we won't go down that road. <laughs> anyway, bars and big screen t- bars with big screen TVs rather will be looking to cash in as they always do on the World Cup, as most of the games are all featured on television. So, I mean, Shin, have you been bitten by World Cup fever, or do you not care? Um, sad. Sorry to say, I, I really um not a soccer fan because I live in um, United States for the past twenty years and. Um, so I like basketball and baseball, but not <laughs> soccer. But, but, but um, I, I actually become like a so-called one-day soccer fan whenever there's a game being played. So there's a lot of those um, that just care about soccer when uh, there's a game on TV and we just cheer um, with the friends around us. But obviously, uh, when you were growing up, when you were young in Taiwan, that would never have happened, of course. That's right. So Because uh, I never imagined that would happen in Taiwan. So <laughs> it's pretty interesting. And Nikki, World mm. Cup fever, or the sorry, of course Scotland aren't there again, so you know. Well, we've, you know, we've become used to it. I can barely remember when Scotland last qualified, so you know, we just we just get on with with the national shame. But um, yeah, I love I love the World Cup. Uh, I'm going to a, a, a World Cup party on Saturday night. I'm really looking forward to it. It's just like it, it's it's a, it's a great atmosphere. Um, the games are exciting, um, and it's just a big spectacle, isn't it? And what about people in Taiwan? Of course, like I said, they they, they traditionally use they support Argentina, Germany, or Brazil. I I think they support Germany, um, or at least I would support Germany because um, yeah. I haven't decided yet, but I'm going to support whoever the underdog is. The underdogs. Yeah. Oh, right. You have to support my lot then, wouldn't you? Yeah, I might I might force myself Martin to support could. England. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Xiao Xinxiang. Good night, everyone. And Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.